Welcome to Tripping Over the Barrel, a series that highlights the unique personalities within the oil and gas industry and the stories they have to share with your hosts and lead storytellers, Tilo and Dr. Funkenstein. Tim, what did you just say? Can you repeat exactly what you just said? Well, sometimes I like to plan for these, but but you don't ever give me a chance. You just start punt you just punt me into the conversation. I so this is a I, I'm fresh off a vacation in Mexico. Went to finally Cabo got San, to Mexico. Oh my God, the passports worked out. Um, Cabo San Lucas, finally, right? Finally, you, you, first you need to retell that. Retell how why it's. I don't think if people didn't see the episode we were talking about, what happened? We'd ha- we'd had this. Uh, we have a timeshare basically, right? And we go once a year, typically like around Christmas or early January to Cabo San Lucas, Puerto Vallarta. It's like the one funcation that we take every year. And COVID threw that off because we were supposed to go in December, but it required multiple tests and you had to wear masks in a resort. And like, who's swimming in a pool wearing a mask? So we're like, all right, let's, so let's punt that trip down to, to June from last December to June of 2021. So, or May. So we show up uh, at the airport, bags fully packed, family of five, and we start checking in and we realize our kids' passports are expired. Yeah, smile because I know what's coming. All of our bags, right? We're like, oh, oh my God. So this was the Saturday Memorial Day weekend, so there's nothing we could do about it. And then to find out the whole process you have to go through, it was effort and it required, I think, three trips, Tim. We spoke at least on one of those. We're like, where are you? I'm like, yeah, I'm back in Aurora again at the passport agency. So we, we got them. Like there was a specific window. We got them. We left. We had the full week down there and got, got it all right. All the, the, the pool and the all inclusive and food and I'm recharged and ready to go. Let's do it. So there you go. So uh, how long are you there for a week, right? Yeah. There for a week, <laughs> then came back for the fourth fireworks and, and here we are, but planning, it's always a constant. I don't plan at all. I am not a planner. I'm going to guess that Chris, Chris Roar, maybe, maybe a planner. We'll find out. Well, no, no, we'll find no. out. But I actually call my wife, and this is a little bit, you know, whatever. I'm just going to say it. Planningstein? Planningstein, because she just can't get enough of oh. planning. I tell you, well, yeah. Similarly, my wife, when she's uh, planning a vacation, we've got an itinerary. And if we get off of it, oh, man, oh. We, we could be in big trouble. It's not that. So now, Tim, if you don't All mind, right. our guest. Okay, so we've got Chris Robart on the on with us. Uh, hey, Chris. So uh, Chris is with Ambient. And I guess we probably met 2016, maybe. You you were fairly new at Ambient, uh, yeah. and I was fairly new at OVS, and we were having conversations. Are we are we competitors? Are we partners? I'm not sure we ever actually decided completely. <laughs> Um, sounds like, yeah, you know, like but we've had, you know, we've had a lot of conversations, you know, competition, getting to know each other. And, you know, of course, uh, then, you know, just one of those random things in the oil business, you're just kind of wandering through on a solo trip to Pittsburgh and suddenly someone yells out your name from somewhere off in the distance and it takes you a while to figure it out. And there's Chris sitting there. So anyway, oh, it's, really? uh, it's, we've, we've, we've crossed paths numerous different times, but you know, uh, Chris, uh, you, your chief, what is it? Uh, chief commercial officer. Chief commercial officer. There's too many chiefs. Um, and at uh, Ambient, 
and uh, you know, doing great things over there. So anyway, so Chris, just give us a quick uh, bio of you. How'd you get into the business? You know, how'd you get to where you are? Yeah, yeah. So uh, let's see. I started, well, I have an engineering degree undergrad, never been an engineer. I've always been on the business side. I'm certain I'm probably a very bad engineer. Um, and my father was an energy lobbyist. I grew up in the DC area. So I always expected I would land in energy. I did not expect oil and gas. I started out with some electricity work uh, out of uh, undergrad, very much sort of an analyst type uh, role. And then uh, anyways, I started doing a little consulting work in oil and gas. And then it sort of took on a life of his own. And then I ended up um, building a consulting and research business that was focused on upstream oil and gas and particularly focused on oil food services. Uh, for, for a three or maybe four year time period, I was like the frack market expert. I would go on road shows. I would talk to equity analysts in New York and Boston and buy side, sell side funds. And that was my world. Um, and I've gotten out of the completion side and now, uh, you know, once we sold that company, we sold that to IHS. Uh, we knew we wanted to stick around upstream oil and gas, of course. Knew we wanted to be in operations um, and ended up uh, deciding to focus in on the production space. Found Ambience and we um, uh, we led a recapitalization and sort of took over operating roles and sort of, you know, over the last four, I guess it's four plus years now, been uh, you know, really in the leadership team at Ambience. Let me let me ask you one quick kind of name question here because I, I I had this problem first time we met I figured well Ambient and they're Calgary based Houston based Calgary Robart man it sure looks like it could be a French name and so with the Canadian influence I, I let me just clarify make sure because the confusion's out of my head is it Robar or Robart it is definitely not the French version Robert uh, okay it's it, Robert. It, I've done the whole 23 and me thing and there is a little bit of French in there, oh, but it's more likely that it's Robart is derived from Rodbart, the German version, or maybe like Danish. I don't know. Um, and so anyways, but it's not the French version. That sounds a little too soft. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Man, so I, I said this before the show, and I'm just going to say it now. I'm not one to mince words. Um, and I have seen a lot of technologies in my day, a lot of upstream software products. And I think Ambient is one of the best upstream oil and gas software products that I've seen. Now, that's somewhat of a layman's opinion, right? That's somebody who sees lots of demos and compares products. I hear things, right? Things mostly mostly sound good. but for my pea brain, Tim, I was really impressed with with what I saw from a kind of production optimization and just well thought out UI standpoint. Have you seen the product? Yeah, I have seen it on, on numerous occasions and the UI is is very well thought out. And I was going to take a shot at you there, Jeremy. Pretty much a pretty graph and you've got Jeremy. He's... That's that's all you really need. Oh, that's a really nice looking chart. That's... Uh, now, I guess the question I would ask is, have you seen the new platform... Or have you seen the old platform? Because we we've been on a long migration journey to an entirely new platform, and the UI UX for the new platform is definitely a good step up from old platform. I think it's the last time I saw was just pre-COVID. Just you, probably, you definitely saw old. So okay, we can another time we can show you new, and it's 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 good. It's it's sexy. Last time I saw it was about three months ago. So you probably saw new. 
And, but there actually have been a lot of UI UX enhancements um, in new platform over the last three months. There's a lot of uh, additional, you know, we're still, uh, we're still migrating, working on the migration process from old to new. So we're still porting over some of the functionality and, and you know, redesigning how some of it works as we move it into new. So there's a lot that's been uh, released on that, on that side over the last few months. So, you know, I'm sure you'd be even more impressed now. Well, you know, while we're on the, the topic of ambient, before we get into the, you know, details Boston Red Sox and all-star games and things like that. What, uh, give us, give us the ambient story. What is, I mean, I know we kind of briefly touched it, but what is the ambient story? What is the the basics that you guys do? Yeah. So we are, let's say very narrowly focused in production. Um, and then even more so we're focused on the well pad and production optimization and artificial lift optimization. You know, five years ago, we were trying to sort out, which part of the value chain we wanted to be, we very quickly decided need to be an artificial lift because that's where you can impact the well and really impact production. That's where you can deliver the most value. So let's go be there, right? Let's go, let's go focus in on uh, artificial lift optimization. So that, that at least that aspect of the hypothesis, which is you can go get production uplift and therefore get a lot of value definitely is, is accurate, right? So we're focused, we're deep. We are a deep artificial lift optimization uh, set of applications. We started out in just raw lift. We've expanded to uh, plunger lift. Uh, and then we have a, a, a module called SmartStream, which is applicable to all producing wells, any producing well, no matter uh, what the lift type is. And then we're just sort of closing out, um, you know, the, the beta for gas lift optimization. So, you know, obviously goals to expand to some of the other remaining artificial lift applications as well. But that's sort of where we're focused is, uh, not just you know this the the conventional approach to artificial lift optimization. When you ask your typical guy in the field or an engineer, uh, they'll you know to them optimization is putting data on a screen and giving the engineer the information to go then analyze that data and then decide what to do with it. Right. So we go a few steps further, and so we apply. Um, you know, we're big believers in first and foremost physics and better physics. Um, but of course, AI, AI is great, but then you're pairing those two with, with SMEs, folks that actually understand these systems, understand the engineering of these systems, the physics of the systems, as well as folks that actually understand the hands-on realities of how you manage these wells in the field. So you put all that together and we're trying to honestly automate a lot of the human-based workflows that live out there from identifying various different problems to straight up controlling how these wells operate and controlling the set points that live in these control systems to begin with. So we're just tweaking the dials, which is otherwise a human activity. And we're just taking over some of those workflows. You know, I, I was talking to a small operator who is really keen on you guys. I'm not sure if they're a client or not. It's a small Bakken operator, maybe a hundred wells or something like that. And and what they said they really liked about your offering is that it puts the ability to change things, the speed and pressure and, and great strategic uh, components of production remotely. Right. And be able to do that with your smartest production engineers and your, your executives in the office as opposed to sending somebody to, to a well and having them do something maybe a little more on feel, right? It, it, right you, you're, you're taking that component over and they like that, right? Because they have to stay as lean as possible and that can help really with their, their you know, routing, production optimization and how their whole business operates. 
Yeah, well, no, that's, we've got a number of sort of small and large Bakken operators as customers. So I'm guessing they were a customer. I have a few in mind that it could be. Um, yeah, no, listen, the, the problem with managing wells, and this is something that took me a few years to really get my head around the psychology of operations teams that live out on the field who are, you know, mostly blue collar kind of guys. You know, there's some, some engineers in there here and there, but it's heavily a bunch of operations guys who are managing these wells, there is so much data. There are so many wells and literally they live in a constant state of fear. They are constantly putting out fires. Uh, they are constantly dealing with the next shit show that's occurred out there. Um, you know, major big producer has gone down. The entire team now needs to go focus on that. All other priorities get dropped. So. To be honest, like they don't, they're not in the best position to think strategically and proactively about how do I do it better? Because they're always putting out fires. And by the time, you know, SCADA sort of hit the industry, what, starting in the 90s and is pretty much the norm by, you know, probably mid 2000s, certainly 2010. Um, and... By the time you've skated up all these wells, you got a ton of data flowing through your SCADA screens. There's so much fucking data. There's no way yeah. that a human can make sense of all these time series, these pieces of time series. And I'll give you an example of plunger lift. Plunger lift, I, when I first when we first started diving into the plunger lift side of things and building out the plunger lift application, I had these sort of naive, uh, this naive idea that plunger lift was a lot easier than rod lift. Turns out plunger lift, there's like, seven different variables that you need to be seven different time series that you need to be simultaneously dynamically analyzed and to understand how that well is trending and how that well is operating. And, you know, the, there's, you know, psychologists that say that humans can't process any more than three variables at one time, you know, to, to make a, a real decision. And so now you're throwing seven out. And this is like a seven dimensional optimization problem. Humans can't do that. I can't, I certainly can't do it. So even your best humans, but then more importantly, you put it on humans that are already fighting fires, living in fear over their head in terms of, you know, the, the, the shit on their plate and you're just setting people up for failure. So we're just trying to take some of that workload off of the plate of humans. And there's plenty of work to go around. We're not trying to take anyone's jobs. There's more than enough work to go around. We're just trying to take some of that work off the plate. Yeah. And I think when I see that, when you have that overload, a lot of times it just goes back to rule of thumb. You know, the, we need to optimize this plunger. And the guy who optimizes plungers in this area always does this one thing. He slows them down or he speeds them up or he changes the egg timer or whatever he does. Yeah. And it's just the rule of thumb. I see this. Okay, change it. Um, it's kind of like, you know, the old Slumberjay frack teams that I, I used to talk to. Every time there was an issue on the frack side, it didn't matter what it was. All right, increase the uh, – the velocity we're putting in, you know, increase the power. That was the whole thing. And it, you know, well, we're a brute force industry. That's always the solution. Right. Crank it up. That must, that'll, that'll make it better. Right. <laughs> yeah. So just speed it up, do it one more time. So anyway, I did, you know, we talked a little bit before the show about this, but you know, so I know in the early days, ambient was, was putting a, a box. I, I, I'm going to call it an edge box, but I don't want to insult you, but oh. some sort of, there's a box that you're putting out on a sucker rod pump or whatever you're, you're monitoring. Um, and pushing that, you know, that information to the cloud at whatever kind of increment. So, and I know that's changed a little bit. So, you know, walk us through edge to what you're doing now. Yeah. So, and that's, you're right. And whether you call it an edge box or an, a gateway or an edge device, it's all a, a piece of edge computing that sits out at the well. 
Um, so that was our exclusive deployment model when we first came to market, you know, four or so years ago in the U.S. And very early, I heard feedback from customers, you know, particularly customers that had a reasonably mature SCADA system that like, we've already got that acquisition. We're not spending money on new hardware. Um, so no thanks. You know, sounds like cool capabilities and functionality, but no thanks to your, you know, let's say I've got a thousand wells, a thousand edge devices doesn't sound very fun to me. That's just too much money, uh, especially in an industry or a part of the industry, the production side, which they don't have big technology budgets. It's not like DNC where a million dollars right. is kind of like a drop in the bucket, right? So um, that was early feedback. And we knew, we always knew, I always knew, because I was sort of front, front lines there, especially early on in, in some of our sales work, um, that we needed to quickly, as quickly as we could, come up with an alternative deployment model, which was to be able to ingest data coming from our customers' existing sort of legacy brownfield SCADA systems. Um, so we, when we started PlungerLift, that's, we, we started there. Um, so we sort of went on this, you know, we, we've sort of internally just called it software only, i.e. just no edge device. Um, but now we've expanded that to, to raw lift. All, all of the new applications that we build, the, the model that we exclusively focus on is, uh, is ingesting data, integrating with those existing SCADA and data acquisition systems. Now, there's, I'll be honest, these SCADA systems, mostly they live on premise. These SCADA servers were not built to make it easy to get data out. Tim, I know that you guys have, have spent oh, yeah. time cracking into those and getting data out. And it is they were not they were not built for that, right? So it, we're we're really pushing the limits of what they were built to 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 do these things. Especially we want we want to stream data out of there to you know get the closest to real time we can. Um, and it's hard. We we had a lot of battle scars along the way to figure out how to do that stably, um, how to do that robustly, how to know when something's broken. So we've got all this you know we've hardened. The data transmission process substantially over the last two years. So we got lots of different pieces of monitoring and anomaly detection in there to help us enable that. But like we got, I'll be honest, we got real hung up on getting data out in a stable, um, consistent way. And then obviously the ability to then push commands back down uh, to the uh, to the edge via the existing SCADA system is another hurdle that we had to go figure out how to go do that effectively. So we've gotten through all that, you know, a lot of battle scars along the way, but we came out the other end with a very robust, very stable uh, sort of platform where we can reliably get data out and then get, get actually get commands back down into the the wells via that that existing SCADA system. Yeah, nice man. I think that was that was well well explained and, and shows you just the role that automation plays broadly uh, is is expanding and and it's it's valued and whoever can make the most sense and and really action out of that data is is likely going to win. So I, I'm looking at your profile now. I can't believe we're not connected. 172 mutual contacts <laughs> on this one. I really, really well, happy. Don't don't hesitate. I, I think I will, but I don't want to get off your page yet because now I'm doing yeah. some some uh, some SWAT some crack research over here. But yeah. uh, Georgetown Prep, right, which is uh, in the on the Maryland side, I believe of DC. Yeah, it was originally part of Georgetown University in the district in the. Civil War, and there was some uh, conflict between the Northerners and the Southerners, and they really, split, yeah. So they split the the lower school from the upper school, and they moved the lower school out to you know, which at the time was like super super suburbs, but now obviously is pretty close into DC. Yeah. So a little blip on my radar, actually, Tim. I don't even know if you knew this. I lived in the DC area for a summer, actually, for about three months, 
and the kids that I lived with went to Georgetown prep, uh, oh. uh Bethesda, Bethesda, I guess would be like, Ch- yep. uh, what's the cabin, John Bethesda right there. Yep. All I know is Chevy Chase just because that was right, yeah, it was yeah. right there. Chevy Chase uh, borders up against uh, Bethesda. Okay. So, yeah, it was, it, it was neat. Right. And then I, I see you went to UVA. I went to UVA for a game. It would have been around the same time they played North Carolina and Julius Peppers was there. Maybe you went to that game. Who knows? Uh, that was tons of fun. And then you went over to Michigan. So some, some pretty big universities, right? Where are your allegiances, man? Who do you root for? Man, I don't have any sports allegiances whatsoever. I'll be, I'll be honest. That's the, about the lowest priority of my life priority list. So, uh, yeah. So Jeremy's going to have to end the podcast now. Is, is my lack of interest in sports. So I can't have a sports conversation with anyone in save your life. I see your walls filled with sports figures there. So clearly, you know. Yeah, it's just me. Um, yeah. <laughs> we can always revert can, back to sports, and this, we, you know, it's time is us a little bit. We, yeah, we can, we can we talk can, about wine. I don't know where you're at on that front. I got a good wine knowledge. <laughs> we could also, uh, you know, uh, it's good. No, we we could. Um, anyhow, so, got him stumped. Okay, I don't know. I <laughs> so to the matrix over here. I lost it. Tim, so, I told you it was going to be rusty today. This is our first <laughs> I, I vacation brain, just shaking it off. And then the fourth, and I think some, something happened where like you were out the week before doing some, some travels. So we haven't actually recorded in a few weeks. I'm like, I, I know I'm going to stumble today. I know. <laughs> well, that's okay. Chris, we're moving into the personal side of this, but I want to revert back one other thing. So one thing that strikes me, I know we've been pushing this. Uh, we've run into this a lot of times in, in my business. But a lot of these, your likely customers, I perceive, aren't ready for or weren't ready, uh, certainly in 2012, 13, 14, weren't ready for your technology. Have you seen that change, you know, in, you know, over the last five years? And has COVID changed it? Um, I don't know if COVID has changed it. I mean, COVID has accelerated all sort of digital transformation. So I guess yeah, it's hard for me to say agreed. it hasn't. I would say that in the last year, honestly, post-COVID or like the last six months, nine months, uh, as all these reorgs have sort of finished up and all the consolidation is sort of stabilized, or at least most of it, um, I have seen a very different state of readiness from our customers than maybe not necessarily like immediately pre-COVID, but like certainly two years ago, three years ago. Um, three years ago, as particularly on the production side of the house, where of course we're focused, there were very few customers out of the super majors who had a cloud established and were actively moving SCADA data, operations right. data into a data lake. Now I'm coming across customers that are otherwise who are perceived as not the most technology forward. In some cases, pretty big customers, you know, bigger independents who uh, lo and behold are working with AWS and have, you know, not all of their SCADA data, but some of the core SCADA data moving into a data lake. You know, they're sort of figuring out how to make, create value out of it. Um, but I, honestly, I'm going to give most of that credit to AWS and to Azure more than anyone else for whether it's kicking and screaming or whether it's showing them the vision or showing them the how, but they have, I think, been sort of leading the charge in 
digital readiness and particularly cloud readiness and cloud proficiency. Um, So as our customers are starting to understand that the future is cloud um, and that they got to go down that road, we start to be a lot less scary. Um, And as they have their own clouds, they start to be able to speak the language and have, you know, not everyone's proficient in cloud, but at least you've got some players that you can work with on the customer side that have enough cloud proficiency. So we can really start to have like reasonable technology conversations. Yeah, it's interesting. They've kind of awesome. demystified the cloud. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think I think the other thing that's gone on is, you know, maybe through my kids and other people, I've you're starting to be able to release your data outside of your walls. You're starting to feel like it's it's more the norm that you're comfortable because everything else is happening out in the cloud in your personal life. You're people are more comfortable letting you know, usually, no, we can't let our forecast be up in the cloud. Oh, yeah, That's yeah, too not scary. That, not that. But I think everyone's gotten much more comfortable with that. So maybe it's made it made it a little bit easier. Yeah, and that's that's definitely part of it. I mean, we at this point have the ability to deploy in our own cloud tenant, whether that's AWS, whether that's Azure, um, or we can also deploy into our customers' cloud tenant. So that helps with the security, sort of the the, the concept of, Am I going to let this data go into someone else's cloud? Now, to be honest, there's a bunch of customers I've sort of very proactively put that option in front of over the last month or so. And mostly they're telling me, no, 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 we're, we're good if you put it in your tenant. Uh, we actually heard a customer tell me, yeah, your tenant's probably more secure than ours is, which <laughs> it was refreshing to hear right. the honest truth. We, we invest a lot of time and money into the cybersecurity aspect of, of how everything is architected, and, you know, all the SOC 2 stuff. So, you know, I, I'm glad that someone's giving us a little credit on that front. But anyways, we uh, six months ago, I would have thought like, shit, we need to be we need to be ready to drop into our customers' tenants because I think that's going to help take some of these um, security and data control concerns off the table. But honestly, I've been like pushing that as a deployment model and most customers aren't jumping at it. There are a few that, that are very much interested in going down that road. But yeah, it's it's definitely, it's a bit of a whole new world, which I mean, it's great for me because it makes all of these conversations for us a whole lot easier. Yeah, you, you're going to have to follow the industry trends and, and oil and gas can be a laggard sometimes, but it's it's good. You know, I love uh, the book Crossing the Chasm. I'm sure that you're familiar with it, uh, whether you've read it or not. It's, it's great, right? But most companies are laggards, right? So you, you need to find the people that are the early adopters and want to be champions of this, which you have, right? And now it's about getting over that hump, crossing that chasm where it's like, well, of course, everybody needs to do this level of optimization on wells of at least a certain size, right? Yep. Or financial discipline and and all that data being available, like let, let's make it work. So we're, so I'm curious from the, the ambient perspective, like doing a, a lot of cool stuff in, in production, production optimization, where else do you see applying kind of the the algorithm or the meat behind the application into other areas? Is it other disciplines within oil and gas? Uh, is it drilling? Like, like where do you take what you've built and re- kind of repurpose it? Yeah, I mean, listen, Corva's pretty much crushed the drilling market. So yeah. that, the readiness on the drilling optimization side, they were ready for... Corvo type solutions four years ago, and okay. you know production's just starting to get around to it. Interesting. Frac, frac is frac was definitely a lower state of readiness than drilling. Now and, and now real time drill uh, frac optimization is starting to actually get some real traction. Um, so production arguably is the laggard of all the laggards in an industry yeah. that's already a laggard. I would I would feel pretty <laughs> confident 
saying yeah, that. Yeah. Um, but honestly, we, we've also, we, we've been asked to get into reservoir by customers and we, we have a full real-time nodal analysis engine at this point where that's sort of as close to reservoir as we want to get. I mean, it's, it's definitely reservoir, but you know, we, what we are not going to go do is be a reservoir simulator. There's other, sure. you know, tackiest some of the folks that have gone and done that. Sure. Um, for us, what's a lot more interesting is taking all this, I mean, what we've really built is process control automation and process control optimization. What's a lot more interesting for us is taking that outside of the well pad. Um, and we may, yeah. you know, go look at compressor management. That's one thing that's sort of immediately adjacent or sometimes at the well pad. Um, but probably looking to other industrial verticals like wind turbines, solar optimization. Yeah. Um, I mean, any expensive piece of industrial equipment has the opportunity to for uh, for process control optimization and automation. Yeah, well, I mean, it'll be fun for me to watch, right? Because I, I think you're right. You're, you're sort of just waiting for the market to to catch up and and fully accept and embrace this, and it's coming quickly, right? And then there's so many other areas and, and things you can do to improve. Which Tim, I'm going to jump in real quick and ask another one, uh, and, and this has to do with sort of the ESG energy transition. You know, you kind of sitting in the seat that you're you're in, having uh, a background I see with a water company as well. Um, how do you leverage what you have, or sort of what's your view on applying technology toward the ESG movement versus um, you know a lot of uh, you know maybe a little bit of fluff and stories people don't understand? Yeah, so we actually have a very compelling story and a, and a highly proven and not only proven but audited story on GHG emission reduction. Um, so we've taken a bunch of, uh, of grants from some Canadian government entities, one of which is the uh, SDTC, Sustainable Development Technology Canada. And their whole sort of, um, uh, you, you must prove uh, GHG or sort of uh, uh, emissions reductions to, to get into that program and take that money. So um, for both RODLIF optimization, we can reduce scope two uh, emissions, really just reducing electricity costs uh, or electricity consumption. Um, and we've got numbers that are audited that are backed up. So we got a whole slide which sort of summarizes you know, the emissions reduction potential. And then on the plunger side of things, um, similarly, we, well, actually it's not scope two, it's scope one. So we can help reduce scope one uh, methane emissions within the context of plunger lift by sure. reducing the, the instances of liquid loading events and therefore you know, the instances of things like venting, you know, venting that, that gas to the atmosphere. Um, and then on the gasless side of things, you know, similarly, we can usually our customers are dramatically over injecting their gas, so a bunch of high powered compressors. So we can help reduce the injection gas and therefore the uh, total sort of work that some of these compressors are doing. So again, scope to emissions, but you know, it's not like blow your socks off necessarily, but they are numbers that help a EMP. There you go, boss. Right? <laughs> They, they can help an EMP contribute to what are pretty ambitious GHG emissions reduction goals across the board, right? Dude, you're a, you're a really good speaker. I just got to <laughs> say, you, I mean, you're rocking. I could listen to you speak. I mean, I, I can tell that you've briefed, you've given briefings before, like you said, speaking to analysts and kind of breaking down things that are pretty complex because trust me, this is not <laughs> that simple. You, you've never met a worse audience than a 27-year-old sell-side analyst, <laughs> or I guess it's buy-side, sorry, a 27-year-old analyst in a short-selling hedge fund. Oh, my God. They get paid like three, dollars $400,000. They're 27, and they made the mistake of thinking that they're worth that much money. A and therefore, they have the attitude and entitlement that goes along with that. So all, they're just... 
they're just going to throw spears at you the whole oh, time. Oh, it's the worst. You, they'll pepper you with questions. And I, I'll be honest, I knew my shit at the time. So sure, I could answer yeah. pretty much all their questions with a very, you know, uh, uh, an answer backed by evidence and real world anecdotes. Um, but they would never let you finish a question. Right. You would get 10 seconds in your response and it would hit you with a new one. And then it hits you with a new one. And it's incredibly frustrating and honestly disrespectful. But anyways, you know, no longer need to go deal with that too much. <laughs> yeah. So I, I was looking you know, at your background and that is an interesting segue. You know, you were obviously you, you exited a company to IHS. I guess you, you sat there for whatever period of time you were required to sit there. It was about nine months. Yeah. No, right. we had no lock-ins with IHS. That's not really all IHS. Chris, uh, did you know Chris Hansen? Uh, he's a senator. He was a, and guest of. And trip, tripping over the barrel guest. No, he's a Colorado state senator. But oh, he was, you know what? I think Sarah from Sarah. I haven't met him, but I think my brother, Alex, sat on a flight next to him. I think maybe coming back from Calgary and had like a great like hour long conversation with him on his flight. Really, really sharp guy, right? We're trying to push him to run for president in 2032. He wasn't having anything yeah. of he's it. Not, he hadn't bought yet. Work to be hadn't done. Yet. Work to be done today. But but nonetheless, he also has some water related entity. So I just think so, something for you to keep in mind when you're when you're in Denver next. But anyway, well, you, you intercepted my question, Jeremy. I know but, I was going to say I cut you off. I'm sorry. So you exit, you spend your time at IHS and then you, you kind of became you were on the investment side, you know, looking yeah. for your your next thing. But you were, you know, in operations at one company that an investor and now you kind of back operating ambient. And I guess, you know, I'm, I'm curious about that transition. What yeah, that's and, and you know what? So, I mean, and yes, so it's been some time as an investor and honestly the time as the investor was mostly about finding the next like full-time thing to, to focus on. And we looked at a number of different options for, you know, something PE back um, starting from scratch. Ultimately, we, you know, we found an existing company and, and recapped them and, and sort of took over operating roles from there. Um, but I think I did learn that being in an investor role, I am probably not the best investor. Um, I, I like to get my hands dirty and get involved and sort of be a little closer to an operating role. And so it just, I got very impatient in that strictly investor focused role. So by the time we found Ambient and we, you know, it was a long deal process um, to you know, bring all the sort of syndicate of, of Series A investors together. So by the time we were sort of, you know, there and starting to get, you know, much more deeply involved right around the time, Tim, I think I probably connected with you. Um, I was definitely ready to just dig my hands in and just get dirty and just nice. start building it, build, rebuilding or building that company. Yeah. Now you keep saying we, now I, I think I know who the other part of the we is. And, and, and so you, you spent a lot of time working with, Alex, your brother, and it just got me thinking, working with my brother for, I don't know, five, 10, 10 years, I'm not sure I could pull that off because you guys know too much about each other. You can push buttons and, and do things. So what, Wait, what's that Tim, like? But before, before you answer that, Tim, aren't we going to have your brother on the podcast? Like we've we need to get this. his LinkedIn profile up so it actually makes sense for us to get him on. But yeah, I mean, we'll have it because he can tell us a great, because he can push my buttons. But yeah, we'll, we'll, oh, we'll man. I, okay. Anyways, sorry. You, Mr. Robar. Well, I, funny enough, I, I just had lunch with some, some folks and they were, we actually got into this exact conversation. Um, working. So I started working together with, and I guess for the audience who doesn't know, my twin brother, who we 
up until relatively recently, identical twin brother, up until relatively (laughs) recently, we worked together in business since really 2008, 2007 even. Um, And I'll be honest, the first two or maybe three years of working together were very challenging. We, you know, know, Tim, obviously you have a sibling, Jeremy, I don't know about you. I'm assuming you do. Um, There's a certain level of casual assholeness you can sort of bring to a sibling relationship that you cannot to a professional relationship, at least most of them. Well, you know, it's one of those things like, look, Alex, would you just quit breathing? It's like, it never stops with you. It's in, out, in, out. So there are some, there are some periods of time for the first, particularly the first two, three years of work together where we got into some funks that were extremely unproductive and maybe even toxic. Right. And so we would have to, have these big blowout sort of communications, expectations, management conversations, and they would help. And anyways, we eventually figured it out. Um, but it was, a, it was a tough road, man. It was a real tough road. Yeah, but I mean, it's not, Tim, it's not like they had bunk beds, like when they were 27 years old working together. Oh, did you? You did? We did not have a bunk bed. <laughs> okay. We were, we never had, we always had our own rooms growing up. Uh, nice. So we never had to really have that level of intimacy. Yeah, that's that's great. I'm I'm just giving you a hard time. No, this is this has been a ton of fun. I know that you have a, a call to get to get ready for and really helping us test out as the first like full video podcast that we've done. It it's been fun. It'll take some getting used to. Uh, but I think uh I, I thoroughly enjoyed this. My last question for you then as we as we wind this thing down is Going forward, will the financial industry be able to to swallow its pride and come back and allow the rig count to increase and drilling to go up as we start to approach $100 oil? Will that be allowed to happen from the finance market? Because you know if the money is available and oil is 100 bucks, people will drill. The, some money will flow back. Uh, maybe not to the same level of exuberance that we saw back in like 2011 and then 2014 again, uh, or maybe 2015. Um, maybe likely not to those levels, but the money will come back. If there's money to be made, that it will come That's back. That's what I'm saying. Money, money will come back. I think that the this whole GHG and HSE part of the story. Um, everyone's got every you know portfolio company, every, you know, public entity needs to have a convincing story to tell um, because the investors need a convincing story to tell to their limited partners. Right. So I think everyone will have to get their shit together on that front and not just have a story because mostly it's just been a story to date. Right. Um, But I think they'll actually have to have actions demonstrating what they've done to back that up. And that's when some of the institutional investors will start to be a little more comfortable with dipping back into that water, but I don't think it's going to be like, yeah, so I don't, it's not going to be, rigs. it's not going to be the wild, wild west again. Uh, man, I hope not, honestly, because you know what happens when, you know, recounts climb, supply chain tightens up, yep. prices get crazy yep. and you know, everyone can make money at a hundred dollar oil. Right. And then, you know, what's the old, the old T Boone Pickens line about when the, when the, Oh shit! I'm gonna butcher this analogy, but when the <laughs> when the 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 I'm blanking on the damn word here. The uh, the tides. There we go. When the tide falls, you see like you know who which boats sink or something like that. This is the worst analogy I've ever. 
you get what I'm saying, right? We're not uh, editing that out, Chris. That's going to stay yeah. in. Sorry. Sorry. We screw up. You screw up. You're human. Anyways, you I knew I was getting into trouble as soon as I started because I couldn't even get the words <sighs> in my head. I know the feeling. We have hours and hours of content where I just simply don't remember what I'm saying. But nonetheless, make sure that you say hi to Autumn Shisha for us. Tim hired Autumn like a month after he hired me at Energy Navigator. It was very, very familial. Love Autumn. Um, and, and really appreciate and respect what you got going on. But to look back to an earlier part, when we when I saw Chris in the airport in Pittsburgh, he was he had just gotten out of a six hour car ride with Autumn. It's true. Oh and my he god. Was, oh he looked god. worn out. <laughs> she she could talk the whole time. I don't doubt she'll, that. She'll talk your ear off, man. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> All right, guys, appreciate uh, you having me on here. I've enjoyed the conversation. Jeremy, it's nice to finally meet you in person, sort of here. Good to see you again, Chris. Uh, looking forward to keeping up the conversation. Absolutely. Take care, brother. Thank you, brother. 